This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast. In tonight's episode, we're going to be discussing the life of Christ through the book of Mark, looking at a historical perspective and a semiotic perspective as well. So as hosts of this podcast, we strive to provide you with relevant and compassionate. Uh, let me change my, I'm going to stop for a moment because somebody told me that I need to fix my audio. So we're going to fix that and I'm going to continue with the introduction. Better audio? Thank you. All right. We uh, are... So we strive to provide you with a relevant and compassionate worldview framework that will help you guide through life. That's our hope. We believe that in order to achieve this, it's important to get first our house in order. So that's what this is about, meaning learning to love and care for yourself is essential before you fully love and care for others. So we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ. But we talk about all kinds of religions here, and we encourage you to do an exploration of this yourself. But in this episode, we will examine the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. We want to ensure you that tonight's episode, we are not fabricating anything. As many have done around theology and the Gospels, we are taking an honest look, giving you information and ideas that are honest and truthful. When we don't know something, we're going to tell you we don't know it. When we need to go search for something, we're going to tell you we're going to go search for it. So our goal is to provide an honest and authentic, that's the word, authentic perspective on our examination of this book. So in previous episodes, we've discussed the potential pitfalls of simply deconstructing old ideas without moving towards a new understanding. So it's important to avoid getting stuck in a cycle and that is perpetuating the same patterns we sought to change in the first place. So instead of fresh perspective, a new framework to construct healthy habits and behaviors. So that's why the construction the constructionist podcast is a space for exploring new ideas, presenting practical thoughts, exploring new theologies for daily life. So we aim to provide a platform for honest and authentic discussions with relevant topics. So if you find these interesting and purposeful and meaningful for your life, we want you to interact with us. That's most important that we hear from you, we engage with you. We believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. So we value your feedback. We value your questions, your ideas, and we are excited to build a community around our shared exploration in this communal hermeneutic that we're building on this podcast. Please don't hesitate to reach out uh, to us and let us know what you think. And if you want to support us financially, go to resonatelife.org on the social media platform you're listening to. There will be a link in the show notes. Go visit our give page. And if you want to support us, 
in producing high quality content like this, you can do that financially. So with me tonight is Jake Flug and Sherea Bodner. We would consider ourselves in this realm of topic, um, not necessarily experts, but learned in it. We know a lot about it. And so we can come to you a little bit more informed, a little bit more authoritative. Shreya Bodner is uh, and has her master's degree in theology. She's a canon of a local church here in Sherwood, Oregon. Jake is also a associate pastor for a local church here in Oregon and Sherwood. He has his master's degree in theology, and I have my doctorate degree in semiotics and master's in theology. So I we hey, come to this. Yes. Would you define semiotics for the crowd? <laughs> semiotics is looking at the signs of the times. So you can apply it to, <laughs> yes, you can apply it to, um, to sociology, cultural, um, cultural contextualization. You can apply it to your reading. You can apply it to biblical theology. You can apply semiotics looking for signs of the times or looking at a deeper meaning within the meaning. Um, it is a craft. It's a way to... Uh, what they would call in old Jewish culture, midrashing the scripture. So looking for the deeper meaning of scripture, the signs of the deeper meaning of scripture when it comes to biblical understanding. That's what semiotics basically in a nutshell would mean. You can do that with culture. You can do that with uh, fields of study. You can do that with all kinds of all kinds of things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. Hopefully. Yeah, you bet. You bet. All right. So an honest look. We got to dive into this because we have we have a lot of material to cover. Again, we are on our third week and we have only made it to the beginning <laughs> of chapter three. Our hope was to do two chapters a week. We are at maybe a half, possibly three quarters a week. So this is going to turn into a longer study, which is OK, a longer study. And it's an important topic because I believe this. I believe that people have been sold a bill of goods when it comes to Jesus. They've been sold more of a performance Jesus. They've been sold more of a, I would say, a fake Jesus concept. And this is how I would say that people have used the Bible as a normative tool where when you look at the Bible, you look at rules and regs to kind of hold over somebody's head. You develop kind of standards or you can um, develop the right things or you focus on this is the right way versus looking. And, that, and the difference between normative and formative is when you take the Bible and you allow it to change yourself, that's formative. When you take the Bible and you try to change others, that's normative. So I believe that we've been trapped in a cycle of normative thinking and explication of scripture where we're constantly looking at how to other people. Jesus is the other. The woman at the well is the other. The adulterous woman is the other. The person who couldn't walk, pick up your mat, follow me is the other. Uh, there's lots of others in the Bible and the glory of God shines through the other. And that is something that we've lost in our current modern day theology and also our praxis, our practice of, of theology, our liturgy, the work of the people. We've lost the work of the people um, to allow the, the glory of God shine through the other. So when we allow the Bible to be formative in our lives, we definitely... Um, can 
possibly attain uh, the love of Christ for self and others, that we finally can maybe express and manifest that love to other people versus judgment and condemnation. So I believe we're trapped in this in this cultural dilemma. And Jesus has been the spokesperson for people for normative thinking. Jesus has been a spokesperson for people for this, I guess, alt-righteousness type behavior versus looking at scripture as a indwelling, looking at scripture as a, uh, a formative exercise or a formative book for our lives. I think all sacred literature is meant to be formative, where it's transformational, the renewal of our minds, the renewal of our souls through the reading, the practice, but also the liturgy, the work of the people, the liturgy that is expressed in in the Bible. So that's where I'm at <clears throat> uh, when it comes to this topic. I want to give people an honest look at Christ. We are upon Easter is upon us right now is Monday Thursday. Um, it's thought that that is the Last Supper day. So we're celebrating Monday Thursday, which means the new commandment. We don't even know what Monday means, but we think that it means the new commandment or that's when it was given on Thursday. Tomorrow is Good Friday. Everything goes silent. Jesus basically uh, dies in the tomb. Uh, it's put in the tomb, dies and is put in the tomb. So that's Good Friday. I have no idea why it's termed good. It seems like it's not good in the moment, <clears throat> which we will see that in in uh, in Mark. Mark does not talk about the resurrection, so we don't get to the resurrection in in Mark. We get to the resurrection in other uh, passages and other uh, ancient literature, in ancient gospels. So so Mark kind of ends um, short, I think. Uh, but we want to give an authentic, honest look um, of Jesus's. Uh, life. So let's do it. Who wants to read chapter three? Well, going to be one section of it, right? Yeah, one section. You can throw it up, Rob. I can read it. <clears throat> Jesus returned to the synagogue. A man with a withered hand was there, willing to bring charges against Jesus. They were watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. He said to the man with the withered hand, step up where people can see you. Then he said to them, is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to evil, to save a life or to kill? But they said nothing, looking around at them with anger, deeply grieved and unyielding hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hands. So he did. And his hand was made healthy. At that, the Pharisee got together with the supporters of Herod to plan how to destroy Jesus. So we talked a little bit about the synagogue system and do we remember when the synagogue system emerged? I mean, that's important because it says Jesus returned to the synagogue. I think that's a historical yes. marker. Like that would have been like after the destruction of the first temple, um, when the exiles returned back from Babylon, right? Yeah, but wasn't it like a little bit like even later than that i mean are, isn't there reports that historical reports that the synagogue system was like within possibly even the first century or the uh or right before the first century i'm not sure okay it's it's right around there 
And so yeah. um, probably population increase and mm-hmm. in Rome, especially um, people were, were needing to worship more in their communities than outside. And so travel right. was different, I think, right. than trying to go to... I wonder... Go ahead. It, well, I wonder, um, so the te- second temple wouldn't have been as grand as the first temple, right? I wonder if um, it just wasn't able to accommodate the amount of people either. Mm. So there's really possibly a population dilemma that they're trying to answer with the synagogue system. What's the difference between, I mean, if you think about the temple system and the synagogue system, is that is the synagogue system kind of the uh, small temple? I mean, I would see it as similar. Just a, uh, It's more of like a, a worship house, right? It'd right. Be like, it'd be like Catholic mm-hmm. cathedrals to um, St. Peter's Basilica. Right. But okay. an issue that we have is, as I'm slowly researching, um, it is thought that synagogues developed after the destruction of the temple in 72 AD. right. So Whoa, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be well after Jesus. Um, yeah. Huh. And it's probably it's one of the main reasons that they late date uh, Mark as well, because mm. the synagogues were not a thing. There were Jewish schools, and I think it's, I think it's hard to perhaps the same word or a different thought that um, rabbis had institutions, had schools that the kids would learn to learn Hebrew, they would learn to um, recite the Torah, and so I think hard a hard sell. Whoa. I'm coming back. There I am. Hello. That's a hard sell, <laughs> I think, to really late date it that far. If we're just looking at the purpose mm-hmm. of synagogue. Okay. So so we have synagogue system all the way from temple destruction, the first temple, all the way to the second temple destruction. I would make the claim, just looking at that history, that <clears throat> there was an emergence. Because never in history has there been you know one day nothing next day everything so yeah. mm-hmm. so an emergence or an evolution of some kind of system that possibly was just termed synagogue so the actual formal synagogue system with not having a temple at all probably 72 sure post 72 uh, but anything before that, there had to have been a community, communal type gathering of some kind mm-hmm. um, to satisfy the needs of worshipers. Right. So this withered hand, this person that comes to, uh, he entered again the synagogue and there was a uh, a man with a hand that is withered. What is this withered hand we're seeing? Dried up parched hand seems kind of kind of weird um other First translations thing I think of say, is Dumbledore. yeah the the hand that looks like ripe corn does that mean no hand ripe do we not corn. know yeah withered I, like, yeah 
Malformed. Yeah, so obviously a physical, some kind of physical ailment. But they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So here's the Sabbath. Shreya, give us an outline of the Sabbath. Why was the Sabbath important? Uh, God rested on the Sabbath and um, that became like a model um, of a rhythm of work and rest. Um, we see the Sabbath introduced with the laws of Moses, um, the Ten Commandments, and part of Jewish practice since then. Um, and there were lots and lots of regulations around the Sabbath. So the original command is to rest and not work. Um, and as society gets more and more complex, we need to define what's work and what's rest. And so all kinds of um, regulations developed around what people were and weren't able to do on the Sabbath. Um, something I wanted to point out that we talked out talked about a little last week is that um, the chapter divisions, the the headings that we see in our Bible aren't original to the text, um, and so the different sections run together. And I think this section fits really well with the section before it. I think it's a part of the section before it. So that's the story. Um, <laughs> of Jesus' disciples picking wheat as they're walking through a field and eating it, and the Pharisees get up in arms about that, breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says the Sabbath is the Sabbath is for humans. Humans aren't for the Sabbath. Yeah, and also given a word there for for people that um, read the Bible in English. So we so we read the Bible, the three of us read the Bible in English. I've heard pastors say things like, for example, um, the Bible says it, therefore, but I believe it and it is done. Um, having that kind of attitude towards scripture is pretty immature that when you're reading the Bible in English, so <clears throat> there's nuances to the original language. There's nuances to and there's metaphor, there's pictures, there's cultural context. There's all kinds of things that the original language would have expressed that English doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so when you read scripture, yes, you can get a lot out of the English. But according to the King James Bible, unicorns existed in the Old Testament. So and, and that's true that it's said as unicorn translated as unicorn. So <clears throat> so it's really important to look beyond just our version of Sabbath. So when we think about mm -hmm. Sabbath, we think about maybe rest day or we think about some people, religious group that, you know, won't do anything on Saturday or we don't even know what that means. You know, Sabbath is just a weird word in and of itself. So I think it's really important to explicate out the words and look at the original language like Sabbath. Sabbath, like Sharia said, goes back to Genesis. It's a rhythm. It's part of a rhythm, really. Um, working the six days and resting on the seventh, like she said. So Sabbath then becomes a metaphor in the New Testament of salvation, eternal rest. And so the Sabbath, the ultimate Sabbath is eternal or eternity. So when we look at 
this idea of Sabbath um, in the Jewish context, in this context, in the system, it would have been illegal for them, according to their law, to do anything on the Sabbath that wasn't within the law. So you could walk a thousand paces, you could mm -hmm. do certain things on the Sabbath, but heavens no, you couldn't, you could not heal um, on the Sabbath, which is, you know, just crazy to according, think about. According you, to their you, law. According to their law, yeah, you couldn't, it's like, it's crazy to think like you couldn't help somebody on the Sabbath, but according to them, no. Something to note about this passage, um, and I, I haven't read it anywhere, and so I'm I'm digging a little bit deeper than I probably should. When a withered hand, mm. and so when when you look at uh, Exodus and Moses, mm. and he puts his hand in his cloak, pulls it out, <laughs> yeah. it is withered and dried up and flaky. Uh, and he puts it back in, and he and it's healed, right? Mm -hmm. I think that we should. It it would not be too far to parallel those passages together, where the man with the withered hand stretches out of his hand, and is healed. Um, to note though is that, and it is that God is the one that heals Moses' hand in, in Exodus, and so. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if some of the upsetness of the Pharisees in that is that Jesus is is being more godlike than they than they would like. It's mm. a good connection. Yeah, that is a good connection because there is a a passage in Isaiah in Isaiah uh, chapter fifty six that is restoring it's like a restoration passage and then there's also exodus in the withered hand so there is this concept of rest that god is the restorer um and so jesus actually physically healing somebody is a claim of being god and doing it on the sabbath you know puts him above the law so Right. both cases that would be that would be true good job that's good insight and this is the very first passage that we see in mark especially that the that the onlookers turned from awe and wonder to fear mm -hmm. and anger mm -hmm. and yeah. so this this is where we see the start of jesus's decline decline meaning uh starting to get a bad reputation amongst the leaders. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I long. look and I just do a quick dive on the stretch out your hand. Mm -hmm. That is the same. Um, that is I the same as Exodus 14. Good mm -hmm. job, Jake. So I look at now, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. That is divinity-like with outstretched hands. Um, that always is a sign of the divine. So this idea of Jesus commanding him to stretch out his hand is also seen in Exodus 14, where... Um, 
God and the God and Moses scene. So, so I would say there's a parallel there. Now, what can you glean from that? Again, it's just another gleaning of Jesus is claiming in his acts and sometimes as words that he's God. So it's just yeah, supporting, Mark... supporting the claim. Nowhere in, in Mark does, does Jesus claim to be God. And, the, and actually the only gospel that Jesus does claim to be God is John. Yeah, but I'm saying that in these actions, this would be a claim of divinity. There's power. Yeah, there's power, definitely yeah. power behind it. Right. Okay. Could also speak to... Um, atonement as well if you think about bringing wholeness to this person okay let's mm -hmm. continue on what what passage are we starting with here rob you want to throw it up go ahead i can read please jesus left with his disciples and went to the lake a large crowd followed them because they had heard what he was doing they were from galilee judea jerusalem idumea beyond the Jordan and the area surrounding Tyre and Sidon. Jesus told his disciples to get a small boat ready for him so the crowd wouldn't crush him. He had healed so many people that everyone who was sick pushed forward so that they could touch him. When the, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down at his feet and shouted, you are God's son, but he strictly ordered them not to reveal who he was. Mm. Why? That's a big question in, in these patches. Why didn't Jesus want to be revealed? That's weird to me. Do we even know? Can we even really know why that is? I mean, a couple thoughts around that is that Jesus, that his, his, his journey to the cross would be expedited if yeah. the powers that be found, like um if there was more claims of divinity um rome was not big on on insurgent leaders and so the more mm -hmm. the more people claim to even even be in leadership or or sage uh they would just be executed because mm -hmm. those those outliers are the ones that draw rebellion right. and so that uh, Mark is what's called the the hidden gospel, and so Jesus is hiding the whole time, pulling himself away, being alone, um, not really engaging much beyond uh, when he chooses to. And so, with this, with that proclamation, uh, I think he would have to engage a lot more. Hmm. So, but it's just, it's just a nuance there. I mean, it's not really untangle that for me because you just basically said that you don't really know. No, I don't think anyone can know exactly. It's just going to be part of their narrative. Right. Yeah. So, so this is my challenge with theology and it's my challenge right now in everyday theology is there's like roots in in theology that are tangled and what happens with tangled roots is the plant rots right and so when we make up things about why jesus hid his 
personhood or his miracles or whatever he was trying to hide. And we don't know that instead of saying we don't know, we tangle the roots. We try to make up stuff. And what happens is things are layered at that point. And pretty soon, like today, I had this like bombshell hit me that Jesus nowhere in scripture does it say that Jesus bore our shame on the cross. And I was looking and looking and looking. I asked like 10 friends, you know, that, okay, does Jesus bore, bear our shame? Nowhere in scripture does it say that we bear, that Jesus bears our shame. And, then, and so I unpacked that for Easter Sunday, which you can follow that online if you want to go to resonatelife.org for Easter on Digital Church. But I, but I, I just see this all the time where we tangle these roots instead of just saying, you know, the point of this passage is not the hidden work of Jesus. The point of this passage is actually right here. If I look, followed him because they had heard what he's doing. They were, we got the, 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 um, he healed so many people that everyone who was sick pushed forward so that they could touch him. So now go to Ruth 3.9. Does anyone have Ruth 3.9? Go for it, Kevin, if you have it. Well, I mean, just Ruth 3.9. Basically, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings, spread your cloak over your servant, for you are the redeemer. And so in a, in a cloak, there was law behind how that cloak was stitched and put together. And on a cloak... On the outside of the cloak, there would be tassels, there would be adornments on the outside of this cloak. But one thing on the outside of the cloak always was the identity of the person. It's like having your initials in script on your jacket, you know, as you're like a, a fraternity brother or sister, you have this like symbol or patch on your jacket. I'm a, I'm a this and alpha chi sigma whatever and so you have this like stitching on your jacket so on a on a cloak on a on a jewish cloak the identity of the person would be on the jacket one would be on the cloak and so when they reached out for and we always picture jesus in like you know tattered like onesies or you know like like a <laughs> like moo-moos Moo-moos, like we do, we just picture Jesus in right. moo-moos all the time, you know, but, but that's not really what they wore back then necessarily all the time. And so, so he wasn't walking around in bedclothes. He was walking around in what he would be identified with. And so the people were actually touching his identity. Yeah. So I think the importance of this scripture is the people identified who he was and the importance here is the other the people who were sick and dying and couldn't walk and needed healing they were the ones that saw who jesus was the leaders didn't see who jesus was the people who really needed healing saw who jesus was that's profound mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's good yeah <clears throat> that's a semiotics tool sharia right there <laughs> Looking for the sign, like you got to look for those signs in scripture of like, why did they touch him? What was the point of touching him? But then, yeah, what was the point of not revealing who he was? They knew who he was. So the people knew, but the leaders maybe were denying it, let's say.
Mm. Yeah, I mean, and we we go back to the whole Son of God quote. Uh, that title mm. was was um, specific for Caesar, and right. so right. Yeah. what Mark is saying the whole time is that Jesus is the same or greater than Caesar. Right, right. And there's, I mean, I just did a quick search for us that uh, we see um, the tassel of every corner of the cloak in Numbers 15, Ruth 3.9, Ezekiel 16.8, 1 Samuel 24.5, Malachi 4.2. So, I mean, there's, there's precedent for them touching his clothes mm -hmm. because the clothes were the, the portion of the clothes were identity. They knew who he was. So that's, yeah. you know, we're not just making that up. You know, it's not just junk theology there. Um, so yeah, I like, I like untangling those roots. Let's, let's move on then to uh, the next section. Do you want me to read the next section? Are we on verse 13? Yeah. So Jesus went up on a mountain and called those he wanted pause mountain and they came to him he appointed 12 and called them apostles he appointed them to be with him to be sent have authority to throw out demons he appointed 12 peter a name he gave simon james and john sons of zebedee i just love that zebedee's sons whom he nicknamed branirges Boanerges, hmm, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Alphaeus' son, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. I just, I just love, obviously, Mark then is written well after uh, the death of Christ. That just shows it, right? What's that? <laughs> that Jesus, well, Judas Iscariot's Judas Iscariot who betrayed yeah. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's like later yeah. in the story. Preview of coming attractions. Definitely not written in in present tense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Boy, how do you pronounce that nickname? I think you did a great job with with Boanerges. 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 Yeah. Now that I look at it again. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Why 12? <clears throat> Why apostles? Why a mountain? Shreya? Because God lives on the mountain, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and important things happen on the mountain. Important things happen on the mountain. <clears throat> well, I think I would push us back to Exodus again. Uh, Mount yep. Sinai. And yeah. the appointing of the, the leaders, but the appointing of the leaders of the 12 mm. tribes mm -hmm. um, yep. and the authority was given to them. And so you see a, you see a retelling of the Exodus narrative in mm -hmm. that Jesus, I, I think there's, there could be more to say that that Mark wrote Jesus as the new Moses, not necessarily right. the new God. Mm -hmm. And so, mm. um, yeah, when you, when you, when you read the story, look, look at parallels between, between Exodus and mm -hmm. 
and Mark. And so you have Mount Sinai in Exodus. Moses comes down, goes up to meet God, goes and comes down and appoints the 12, the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes. Mm. So even like the Beatitudes, Jesus up on mm-hmm. the hill, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking from a higher place um, shows two things. Most leaders spoke from a higher place, and so he just culturally, naturally, there's nothing to it. But when we see so many collective ideas, like Jesus went up on a mountain, he appointed 12, he called them apostles, He sent them out to preach, throwing out demons, the adversary. And then he names the 12. The the number 12 in Hebrew would be significant. The mountain would be significant. Um, Mm -hmm. But also giving a new uh, mandate. So the new mandate is not, or the old mandate was follow the law. This new mandate is to throw out demons. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean to throw out demons? <clears throat> Let me look that word up demons really quick because that just came to me. Yeah. So I don't have any pre-work on that. We did talk about it a lot last week though, or the week before. Go, go for it, Trey. Um, what I remember is we were talking about um, mm. demons being connected to the the Hebrew word, the Satan, the accuser. Um, it's the adversary. It's the Greek yeah. version of the devil, the demon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was more French. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <clears throat> so so yeah you're right yeah i remember that now from two weeks ago if you want to research mm-hmm. that out so what i said about that a couple of weeks ago was everybody can believe in the devil <clears throat> even those that don't believe in the devil you can believe in the devil and i understand why people don't believe in the pitchfork red caped dude in the middle earth with lava and fire. I know why people don't believe that. I don't believe that. Uh, I believe more in the Satan evil amongst us, evil perpetuated by us, but the Satan or the devil could be said as the adversary. You can translate every word there adversary meaning the person that works against God. And so casting out any thoughts or spirits that work against God, I would say that that is the new mandate. Oh, that's a lot different than following Sabbath paces, I would say. Yeah, so uh, what we have seen is Jesus throwing out demons um, have been barriers of people to enter into community, 
that into, was Shereya's insight two weeks ago, wasn't it? Right, right relationship to enter into like the economic system that they could sustain themselves. And so I, I, I take the tendency that Jesus is saying to his apostles to take someone's life and make it better. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think we're called to throw out mystical deities. Mm-hmm. Could be. Why not? It's I mean, a good story. Yeah, you can have that. Yeah, it's a good story. I I do think that I do think that people uh there is I guess enchantment is the word. Um enchantment in spirituality means there's angels and demons and magic eels the church of the magic eels people used to go to a church in europe and they used to pay money to the church to go view the magic eels in the well and these these eels were swimming in water and if they made a certain formation it would tell you how long your marriage would last how long your loved one so it was it was almost like you know the 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 well of love you know valentine's day well people would go there to seek love how long would this marriage it was it was the well of magic eels and over time that just went away and like certain revolutions and enlightenments and and such that enchantment went away there's nothing wrong with the enchanted as long as you're not freaking weird about it. I mean, when you're weird about stuff, people just look at you and go, "How is this even Christian?" Um, as long as as long as we're focused on loving God, people, and self, that's the greatest command. Um, mm-hmm. and and sometimes when we get weird about stuff, it definitely gets in the way of that. <clears throat> We've all had experiences with that, I'm sure. So. Yeah, you're right. I I think that we're all on the same page there when it comes to the demons, the devil. Are we in 320? Let's do it. Can I say something before we get there? <clears throat> Please. Um something I thought was interesting. Um so I preached on Mark 14 last week, couple weeks ago, and that's the first yeah. place in Mark that um somebody recognizes who Jesus is and what it means um, that someone recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. And the disciples are sent out here in chapter three, which is significantly before chapter 14. Like they don't know anything yet. We're just starting out. And Jesus has already sent him out. Yeah. Sent him out preaching, sent him out making people's lives better. I mean, if you look at it, though, it's to be sent out. Okay. So they're not quite there yet, but but we see later on where he actually sends out the 72. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I guess it was the 12 and then the 72. I can't remember. But Depends on the gospel. It was long before Jesus died. So what were they preaching, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, were they preaching or were they just casting out demons? <laughs> making people's lives better. I mean, preaching is subjective, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. what were they saying? Get rid of your demons. 
<laughs> I guess I guess all, they were proclaiming the maybe. I mean, honestly, if they knew in the early part one through ten, if they knew the identification of Jesus, they knew who he was just by touching his cloak, knowing his cloak, who he was, then they would mm. have proclaimed at simple best the Messiah is here. Yeah. With a little bit of caveat, demons come out. <laughs> That's them. Yeah, all the demons. I mean, honestly, I don't mean to like make fun of like casting out demons or the caroms or the charisma type stuff. We've just all had pretty deep experiences with such things. And um, it's, it's uh, produced a lot of what I'll call f fake Jesus out there which is kind of sad. Mark 13, or excuse me, Mark 3, 20. Uh, Go. 20. Go for it, Jig. Jesus entered a house, a crowd gathered again, so that it was impossible for him and his followers to even eat. When his family heard, Jesus' family, what was happening, they came to take control of him. They were saying, he's out of his mind. The legal experts came down from Jerusalem. Over and over, they charged. He's possessed by Beelzebub, and he throws out demons with the authority of the ruler of demons. When Jesus called them together, he spoke to them a parable. How can Satan throw Satan out? A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse, and a house torn apart by divisions. <clears throat> Ooh, a collapse? Yes. If Satan rebels against himself and is divided, then he can't endure. He's done for. No one gets into the house of the strong person and steals anything without first tying up the strong person. Only then can the house be burglarized. I assure you that human beings will be forgiven for everything, for all sins and insults of every kind. But whoever insults the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That person is guilty of a sin with consequences that last forever. He said this because legal experts were saying he's possessed by evil spirits. There's a uh, there's two more verses that conclude this section, but I think Go we can it, stop yeah. here because that's a that's good. Good this we can stop here for now because that's a a lot there. That is a lot there and I think that it's a lot misused um in our culture, house divided amongst itself will not stand. You know, we, we use that mm -hmm. a lot. So let's kind of explicate this out. The idea is that I would say Jesus is using the, the logic that Satan can't be against itself. And so and so to, to cause damage would be to cause damage. And Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. And so it's a separate deity. And it just then, got weirder there. <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Flies. And so then you go into you go into the, uh, the also calling him Satan. So they're, they're throwing out all these different deities out there that Jesus could be. Right. Um, and then you have the insanity piece where where his family literally thinks that Jesus is crazy. Mm -hmm. And so 
it starts with that. But this is always the leaders calling him crazy. So the people that are not necessarily spending time with him, I can't remember in the Gospels if, if any, besides Judas, who we already know threw Jesus under the bus. Uh, I don't ever remember any of the apostles or people spending time calling him off his rocker. It's always the, it's always the people that are not spending time with him. Well, his family calls him crazy twice in this section. His well, that's true. Family. So in 21, it's his family came to him and they were saying he's out of his mind. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the next section we're going to read is that uh, they're going to call him crazy to his face. And so what? Yeah, that has certain nuance to it, right? It has certain meaning. Like, Say more. Well, I think in the Jewish culture, if you just looked at the Jewish culture in and of itself, it's very familial and close. I think that's been the case even in the ancient world that for survival, they, oh, they would have, huh? It's good. It's agrarian. It's right. They to... would have stuck together. They would have married closely together um they would have lived together they would have just been together so to have somebody move outside of that that camp let's say yeah um i think would be seen as a as a crazy as a crazy person <laughs> so what some theologians think in this section is that mark is addressing some of the accusations that Jesus and that Jesus followers were receiving. And so Beelzebub doesn't come out until later, like in, in antiquity. And so the idea is that, that you have, you have words and phrases that should be coming later. And so, um, these are attacks that, that the church, the early church was dealing with. Not necessarily, mm -hmm. not necessarily uh, Jesus and Jesus self. You have, you have the idea that William Jesus Golding Christ... is not on the scene. Who? Just, wow! It's it's just <laughs> the author no of idea. Lord of the Flies. Okay, forgive me. <laughs> I was just I was just thinking that if you're talking about later editions and such. That's a reality. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, never mind. It's just, that no, you're was a good. dumb joke. There's a dumb joke. You have you the idea of the <laughs> church that Jesus was crazy, was Satan, was of another deity in the form of God yeah. trying to come. Um, and so, and also the idea of, um, in the next section, it's who's my whoever who's my brother my brother and my my mother whoever does the will of god and in the early church oftentimes you would leave your family to join a, a commune basically of of, mm -hmm. of believers 
and so a monastery or a, of sorts. And that would, so you would actually leave your family. Jesus calls for people to leave their family as well. Um, later on, the rich young ruler, um, right. the, all, all of his apostles, he's asking to leave their families as well, leave their family for making profit for them. And so uh, you kind of can can hear the, the echoes of the early church here and what they're dealing with. Mm, that's interesting. Okay. Shrey, any other insights on that? 31 to 35, that's where you started in on. We can read that if you want. Um, yeah, I want to throw yeah, that. Yeah, because that just... was, yeah. <clears throat> Rob, you want to throw out the next one? Verse 33. His mother and brothers arrived. Oh, they stood outside and sent word to him, calling for him. A crowd was seated around him, and those sent to him said, Look, your mother, brothers, and sisters are outside looking for you. He replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Looking around at those seated around him in a circle, he said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. I was thinking about this um, because it's not just a call to leave one's family, but also expanding the definition of family. Um, When Jesus looks at those around him and says, these are my brother, my mother, my sisters, um, I was thinking about um, the BLM protests in 2020 and how some of the major criticisms of um, of that group was um, that it was threatening to the nuclear family, that there's more this um, communal idea of family, um, much more extended. Um, yeah, that's just, it's a similarity that I noticed. Hmm. In what in what protests were you comparing that to? B- BLM in the BLM charter. Oh, oh yeah, it, it says... mm-hmm. those those mash together. Well, to not mm-hmm. think that we have an extended family, right. just in culture, is like, are we awake? Because because just because we're not connected by blood, by blood. Um, does not mean that that we don't have quote family mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really is a underlying message as as the evangelical church has been so concentrated on the nuclear mm-hmm. family, they've lost sight of the value of the extended family. And so one of the challenges is when you are ingrown, you're ingrown, you're infected. Yeah. And, and it's like Your a family bad tree is to- a stump. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't fork. And so, so when you're ingrown like that and you're only looking at self, you don't learn anything new. And that's really where we're, that's really where we're at right now in our culture is we're living in these like echo chambers and I've really practiced some things here lately for myself is extending my thoughts into, well, maybe I need to listen to this other voice. I could totally disagree with it. And I can, that person might be from a background or might be from a situation that I've never even been exposed to, but I can learn something from that. Maybe, 
what not to do or believe, but I can learn something from that. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that people that are, and everyone's uh, throwing this word out woke. Well, I do want to be awake. If I just look at the word woke, I do want to be woke. Now I understand where people are throwing that out as a political type attack or or such but just the idea of of opening our eyes and being awake and being connected to a large community and a tribe and a nation and a like we're considering cultures and we're looking at the needs of others um Jake what is the definition of woke you gave me the other day I don't think that was I don't think that was me. <laughs> oh, it wasn't you. If you just look at the common definition of woke, you'll see something very interesting. Woke. It's derived from um alert al to racial prejudice yeah. and discrimination. It's like okay. Okay. I definitely want to be alert to to racial prejudice and discrimination. I want to be sensitive right. to that and knowing of that and seeing my white privilege and seeing how that plays out and curtailing some of the toxic things in my life. I definitely want to be woke. Um, and so when, when Jesus is saying, who are my mothers and brothers, he is actually growing in being woke. Like he's telling us to look outside of our so nuclear self of homogenous living that there's other people that are in need and other people that are um, in need of the love of Christ. Is that a fair look? I, I, I yes. So. I think we have to be careful with the term woke, but... Yes, it's very specific. Um, and also the idea of the idea of the nuclear family the the smaller we view ourselves and the more the more smaller unit that we view ourselves the more individualistic mm -hmm. that that we have defined who we are um that is when we become i think lost away from the gospel that the gospel is from for everyone in homogenous relationships, um, if you look around, we all look the same, even on this screen mostly, mm -hmm. right? So we're a very homogenous group. We we are around people who make us feel the most comfortable. Even the term woke, most people that, that are listening to us don't care about that term. Well, they want to be that term. They want to be that term. <clears throat> yeah. And so... Right. So we are we are in a group of people that that think the same, act the same, believe the same, want the same. There is a danger to that, though. There's a little there's, bit of a danger, if I can push that, I think <laughs> I think that is a great danger. And that's yeah. what I'm speaking, is the danger of that, okay. that, that we all look the same, think the same, act the same. And it's, it's within homogeny that we lose, that we lose the gospel. Yes, but the reason why I was bringing that up in Jesus is he is in a homogenous situation 
and his parents would have been a homogenous situation. And he is witnessing racial prejudice and discrimination. We see that with the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. We see that with the Gentiles. We see that with women. We see that, you know, we see it with lots of people that he marginalized people groups that he's working with that we see him noticing the very thing that we in our politic are some groups are criticizing um yet i think that and not to get too deep into that but i think that that's how we need to learn we need to be more like jesus this way and awake awaken O sleeper right (laughs) <laughs> definitely that's, that's ezekiel i think but it's good i okay. know right yeah hey let's get into this uh let's get into this next section because this is this is a good section in mark 4 1 through 9 jesus began to teach beside the lake again such a large crowd gathered that he climbed into a boat there on the lake he sat in the boat while the whole crowd was nearby on the shore he said many things to them in parables While teaching them, he said, listen to this. A farmer went out to scatter seed, and he was scattering seed. Some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky soil where the soil was shallow. They sprouted immediately because the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it scorched the plants, and they dried up because they had no roots. Other seed fell upon among thorny plants the thorny plants grew and choked the seeds and they produced nothing other seed fell into good soil and bore fruit upon growing and increasing the seed produced in one case a yield of 30 to 1 in another case yield 60 to 1 in another case 100 to 1 he said whoever has ears to listen should pay attention Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, Jake, give us your, give us your economy, <laughs> your economic Jesus. Uh, we haven't seen it much in this, and the the healing of the, of the demon possession and the infirmitous, um. But Jesus's gospel is an economic gospel, and so it's through the change of economics that that freedom can happen. And so, heaven and hell is what you create here. You create heaven for people here, and you create hell for people here. I think the idea that hell and her heaven are some far off place gives us license to do whatever we want to here. Um, but if we realize it closer to us, then then we make greater and more lasting change around us. So we rather make hell or we make, we make heaven and being in position of power. Like we are, um, we have the greatest propensity and the greatest access to, to make heaven and make hell. And we do that through, through our purchasing. And so even in Jesus's day, there was a great hierarchy of wealth. And so it's, it's the idea of the pyramid structure where Jesus is trying to take that pyramid and turn it upside down so that the, the richest will be last <coughs> and the poorest will be first. Um, mm-hmm. It's also the idea of Jubilee 
that um, I think Jesus, this is, I believe the reason that Jesus was actually killed was, was he was trying to instate the year of Jubilee that hasn't happened. Uh, there's very little proof that it's ever happened in Israel, um, in the Hebrew people. Supposed um, to happen. <laughs> yeah, supposed to happen every every 49 years that that all slaves were freed, all debts were canceled, and all land went back to the original owner. So it's the idea that no matter how hard, if you can't outwork your neighbor to try to gain and be, then just be more comfortable. You need to help them grow as well. Right. That we all grow at the same rate and the same pace together. And so... Um, I think that we've lost, we've lost the meaning of these, of these types of bushels. I think that it actually had more of a meaning to the readers and we try to spiritualize them. Um, but I definitely believe that that the original readers would have made an easy connection to what those figures actually meant. Um, especially around like the second, the the destruction of the second temple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Shreya, do you have anything to add on that? Um, not yet, um, but maybe it's time to read the next section since that's where Jesus explains the parable. Perfect. Thanks, Rob. When they were mean? alone, no. the people around Jesus, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. He said to them, the secret of God's kingdom has been given to you. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. This is so that they can look and see, but have no insight, and they can hear, but not understand. Otherwise, they might turn their lives around and be forgiven. Don't you understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The farmer scatters the word. This is the meaning of the seed that fell on the path. When the word is scattered and people hear it, Right away, Satan comes and steals the word that was planted in them. Here's the meaning of the seed that fell on rocky ground. When people hear the word, they immediately receive it joyfully. Because they have no roots, they last for only a little while. When they experience distress or abuse because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like the seeds scattered among the thorny plants. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of this life, the false appeal of wealth, and the desire for more things break in and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. The seeds scattered on good soil are those who hear the word and embrace it. They bear fruit, in one case a yield of 30 to 1, in another case of 60 to 1, and in another case 100 to 1. So to bring up the disparity of what people have done to this scripture mm -hmm. is, and I'm sure that my reformed brothers and sisters will um, chastise me for this one. So this scripture a lot of times is used for ref reformed theology um, between two types of grace. And the first type of grace is preparatory grace, and mm -hmm. the second type of grace is salvific grace. So, 
so that the God is, you know, throwing out grace and that which lands on rocky soil is not salvational. But that which is on the good soil is salvational. It all has to do with mm -hmm. a complex, I would say, tangled, rotted root system that now that we're talking about soil, um, that God is only uh, saving the elect, that which is on good soil. What do you guys think of that? Like that just, I know what I think of that, but only the good soil receives the everlasting love of God. Gonna go first, right? Yeah, no, I disagree. Well, what I see here, so Jesus says the secret of God's kingdom has been given to you. Um, and so we assume that's about salvation, like some sort of personal salvation, my individual soul or something like that. Um right, right. but we've already seen um that what Jesus is doing in Mark is much more communal than that. Um and so I think Jake's economic interpretation makes way more sense. Um, I mean, we even see that in verse 19, where it says the worries of this life, the false appeal of wealth and the desire for more things break in. Like it's right there. It's right, right. there. And we ignore right. it. What verse so we can pull that out again, Shreya? Let's uh, focus uh, four on 19. That. Yeah. But the worries of life, the false appeal to wealth and the desire for more things break in and choke the word and it bears no fruit. <clears throat> so there's a concept of the hedonic treadmill. Right. And and this is what Jesus is speaking to. It's the scarcity mindset that mm -hmm. um, what you have is never enough or good enough. And it's, it's what all capitalism is built on, that right. what we have now is not enough, not good enough, we don't have enough. Um, Jesus also talks about it in the parable of the barns so that um, the rich farmer built barns because of his bumper crop. Instead of giving it all away, uh, he, he built barns to keep it so that he could rest. And he said, you fool, your life is taken tonight. And so <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know where, what book that's in, but you can look it up later. The idea is that, is that we keep moving forward and we're only focused on what we don't have that we make others not have because we don't. Mm -hmm. So to get psychological on you, the hedonic adaptation is the idea that everyone has a set point of happiness or satiation. Mm -hmm. And pretty much, I would say all human beings given their context would set that point at the word enough. And so when we have enough, that could be conscious or subconscious. So when it comes to wealth or food or shelter, that's going to look different for everybody because we live in different contexts but everyone will have a set point of what Brene would Brown would call enough. And when we have enough, uh, that is the point of comfort, like comfortability and satiation, mm -hmm. the treadmill. Then we start running on the treadmill and we try to gain more. 
and that doesn't create any more happiness. Um, yeah. In fact, it could create a lot of unhappiness. Anxiety and, and happiness. Anxiety yeah. and such. So we will actually make decisions that will get us back to a set point. We will then go and make it, we will endure so much anxiety, so much heartache that we will eventually like in wealth, we'll make a bunch of bad decisions and maybe not, we might yeah. not ever get back to that set point, but the set point is enough. And I would say probably the three of us here in this culture right now probably has an idea of potentially what enough is at least a general idea. Yeah. Um, and it's not in, in the subconscious. That's where uh, we don't really know. Maybe it's just an, an innate feeling of like, I don't need, I might think that four cheeseburgers a day is enough, but my body is going to tell me eventually that it's not too enough. much. Oh, <laughs> it's way too much. <laughs> and so, so that's the concept of the set point of that. Yeah. Um, relate that back to the text now. It's, it's, it, go, it goes back to those who have will take more. Those who don't, and this is going to come up, I think, actually here soon. Those who don't have will have even less. And so when we go into the anxiety that we don't have enough, mm -hmm. but we do, and we start scrambling and grabbing, we take from those who don't have. Right. In order for capitalism to work, there has to be a party taken from. Mm -hmm. And so what Jesus is, is, I think, critiquing is the idea that people have a lot and they keep accumulating more and more. And even right. if you look at our, the wealth gap, how that grew during COVID, the richest mm -hmm. got so much more richer and the right. poorer got so much more poorer during right. COVID that it's, it's insane. Mm -hmm. Just in the last two years, like, well, the wealth gap has doubled. Well, that's because the world was in crisis. And so when you have crises like famine, depression, I mean, look at who became rich out of the depression. You know, there was people that got rich out of the mm -hmm. depression too. Yeah. So you think about crises that that wealth gap, there's always a disruption in the gap. It widens. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. That's why, <clears throat> well, you brought up capitalism. We don't live in a strictly capitalistic society. We have a mixed economy where, you know, people who like get so angry at socialism. Um, but we have we lots collect, of services. We, that, yeah. we collect social security. We have so schools. That's, <laughs> that's it. We have public schools. We have libraries. So like those kinds of things are. We have electricity. That's why we have a water. We have a we have a mix of, yeah, we have public utilities. So we, we have a mix of socialism and capitalism mix, but in Christianity, disregard the government, disregard the, the framework. Uh, we are to have 
a generosity. And so what we gather, we are to be generous with that. And that's the only thing that scripture tells us what builds trust in God and also trust in others. Relationship is generosity is the one thing that builds, builds our relationships. Let's close down tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night.